We've looked at a number of the research studies that have come out in recent months, especially since the explosion of generative AI on the public consciousness just a little over a year ago, because this is really the question that is on everyone's mind and that we are asked all the time, what will be the implications for jobs? I think the IMF's estimates are in line with what we've seen and heard elsewhere, that the, a very significant percentage of jobs have the potential to be impacted in some way by AI. Welcome to the Regulating AI podcast. Join host Sanjay Puri as he explores the dynamic and developing world of artificial intelligence governance. Each episode features deep dives with global leaders at the forefront of regulating AI responsibly, tackling the challenges using AI can bring about head-on and enabling balance without hindering innovation. Welcome to the Regulating AI podcast. Artificial intelligence, AI, stands at the forefront of technological evolution, with experts predicting that it could add trillions of dollars to our GDP, but it could also negatively impact our workforce and national security. So how do we regulate it without stifling innovation? Our podcast features insights from various perspectives. We get industry leaders, we've had government officials, we have leaders of advocacy groups, they all try to address pivotal questions that are needed to create practical legislation. I'm very excited to have Alex Swartzel with us today. She's the Managing Director of Insights for Jobs for the Future Labs. She's leading the launch of GFF's new Center for Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Work. I invited her to this show as we want to have as many voices as possible to create practical legislation. And jobs and workforce is one of the most important issues that faces the implementation of AI. And she can provide us with a unique perspective. Welcome, Alex. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the Regulating AI podcast. Thank you so much, Sunday, for having me. It's a delight to be here. Alex, just a couple of days ago, we are right now in Davos week, so to speak. IMF came out with a report that, you know, take different levels of numbers, anywhere from 40 to 60% of jobs could be impacted, depends on what level of your economy, what kind of jobs that are there. Especially in countries like the US, they said it could be up to 60% of the jobs. What is your reaction to that report? And I don't know, did you get a chance to look at or hear about what IMF came out with? We've looked at a number of the research studies that have come out in recent months, especially since the explosion of generative AI on the public consciousness just a little over a year ago, because this is really the question that is on everyone's mind and that we are asked all the time, what will be the implications for jobs? I think the IMF's estimates are in line with what we've seen and heard elsewhere, that the, a very significant percentage of jobs have the potential to be impacted in some way by AI. And the key question, the one that we're asking and that serves as the foundation for much of our own research and work in this area is how. Uh, it is a, a lot of the research that's come out so far has suggested that it's quantifiable, right? How many tasks, how much of your time, what jobs will be automated to some degree. But as we've all seen with, especially with the introduction of generative AI tools, but the same also pertains to sort of prior forms of AI that still exist today. The way in which AI will reshape and transform jobs really matters. So we released a framework back in November that indicates that what you have to look at is not just how much AI is impacting a job, but is the way in which AI 
intersects with a particular task or a particular skill that a human worker may perform? Is the use of AI likely to increase how much the worker is performing that task and to make the worker better at it? Or is it more likely to take the place of the human worker because the AI is simply better at performing that task? Let me give you a couple of examples. So tasks like if you are a, a software developer or someone working in the IT field, and a lot of the work that you have to do is in quality assurance, testing the code that you've built to see if it's accurate, right? AI, especially generative AI and other forms of AI, are getting increasingly good at that task. And we're seeing that transform the software industry even now. At the same time, we're also seeing more and more people use generative AI tools to help them write speeches, script conversations with their colleagues, help them make better, more persuasive arguments, help them support their teams in different ways. These innately, uniquely human skills that in some ways a machine can simulate, but a machine will never be able to truly have the same kind of interpersonal connection that even you and I can have over a phone conversation, right? But the AI can make the humans better at doing that work. It's more likely to elevate or augment the human experience. And so I agree that there are likely to be a vast number of jobs that are fundamentally transformed in some way by AI. The key question is how, and those actually are choices that are being made even today, right now, which is why this conversation is so timely. So Alex, now I understand what you're saying. There's two areas. One is obviously you said quality assurance, QA in software development, et cetera, which can easily, because those are mundane you know, jobs which are easily doable. What do those QA people do then? There are hundreds and thousands of them and QA is just one of them. There's marketing copy. I mean, I can just rattle off radiology analysts, et cetera, et cetera. When IMF talks about 60% and then obviously my question, is there a role for legislation? What is the role for government? But before that, what happens to all these people, I mean, you, the usual answer is, hey, we've had many changes. You know, you look at the advent of the car, the bulb, et cetera, et cetera. You go to higher paying jobs. How does 60% of the population go to higher paying jobs? I'm, I'm trying to scratch my head there. It's a really important question. And especially because coming from the perspective of working as Jobs for the Future, my organization does to support the workforce development ecosystem in the United States, our ecosystem has been recommending that people seek out careers in technology and jobs like software developer for a long time because those have been pathways into economic opportunity. That's been some of the received wisdom that's been really powerful about AI is that it, it is coming for proverbially jobs that are higher paying, right? That involve more of these kind of analytical skills. It's a really important question. I'll preface this by saying it, we are dispositioned to be optimistic about the potential for AI in some ways, because we feel like we must be, because this technology is here, it's not going away. And so if it's going to be here, then it's incumbent on us, it's a responsibility to do everything we can to make sure that the way in which it is incorporated into the workforce, into our education systems as well across the economy, does so in pursuit of equitable economic advancement, which is our mission, does so in pursuit of better jobs and more jobs for human beings. So that is potentially a real paradox. And I think it starts to get into some of these deeper conversations about how is AI being used in these jobs and what does occupational transformation actually look like? Some of our reflections that are really bedrock to the research that we've done so far is that jobs don't change overnight most of the time. Sometimes tech is a great example because of the pace at which tech moves the, and the, the speed with which 
tech workers are likely enabled to adopt technology solutions. Tech can move very, very fast. But, you know, for a truck driver that or a healthcare worker, for instance, that transformation may occur much more slowly just because of the nature of those industries. And so if a job is changing over time rather than overnight, that creates a lot of opportunities for everybody who surrounds that job, both the worker in it, as well as their leadership at a company that, you know, the learning and development organizations and others that create opportunities for them to upskill, reskill, shift the ways in which they are operating within their job through the principle of job shaping and job design. There are so many ways in which a job can evolve in truly intentional ways that allow humans to better capitalize on the skills that they uniquely bring. And this is a lot of the the guidance that we are providing in some of this early research and intend to continue to do, because that's what we're hearing. Those are the questions that we're getting is, what do we do now? How do we prepare people? And to us, the nobody can predict the future with perfection, but to us, the best answer that we have is let's take the position that the purpose of these tools must be to unlock human potential. And so when we think about how we're adopting them in the workforce, in an educational setting, start to ask questions about what is the right thing for the person in this job to be doing? And if a software developer doesn't have to spend a, you know 10 hours doing quality assurance anymore, no job is a monolith. That software engineer is also probably spending a lot of time engaged in conversations with their partners within a company, with a client, for instance, to try to understand challenges, navigate pain points, think about the right way to design a software product, for instance. And so perhaps by automating away some of the tasks that AI can displace, this creates more time in that worker's day to do work that is still fundamentally the work of software developer, that's still very important to that role, but that is work that can uniquely be done by a human or that AI can elevate and augment. So what we think we're going to see over time, if this technology is adopted thoughtfully and responsibly, which is pretty important, jobs, the mix of skills and tasks that are utilized within occupational sets start to change over time. And that creates real upscaling opportunities for workers, or it should if we do it right. There are a lot of things you said, which I want to come back on, a lot of things to unpack. But before that, let's say there's a young 14-year-old, 15-year-old girl who has been told, hey, code. Coding is the opportunity for a career, you know, girls who code and stuff like that. Would you still tell her that, yes, that's the opportunity today? I would tell her that there is incredible opportunity in building technology products that make the world better. But here is the thing to focus on, that when she proceeds down her, if if that's something that's exciting to her, when she proceeds along her training journey to not just focus on the technical skills, learning Python, learning some of the coding languages, thinking about how to do these technical tasks. What I would encourage her to focus on are bigger picture, creative thinking skills, as well as judgment. So how do you know that a software product is good? How do you know that it's meeting the needs that it's designed to meet? How can you think creatively about what new products should exist in the world? That kind of creative thinking, again, AI can help. It's a great generative creative machine. But it only lives up to its full potential when it is guided by human ideas and creativity and judgment. And so the more that we, that's this part of why we really are digging in deep on these ideas of soft skills, durable skills, there's a lot of terms for them. But the more we think that humans can develop those foundational skills that really appear across a number of jobs, admittedly in different ways, 
that's going to be the key that makes human workers resilient in an ongoing way to the shifts that may occur that are driven by technology. So Alex, correct me, I could be completely wrong. Are you implying that maybe we used to push STEM, that maybe going back to liberal arts might be a thing for us to do now? That's a really thoughtful question. And I, I think... Because isn't that you subtly were kind of, when you started saying, you know, coding, technical, because that's a, we've been talking STEM in this country now for 20 years at STEM. And now it seems from, at least from what you're saying is that there are other things to know besides that. So I think I might make the distinction in a different way. I think there are big questions about the future of domain knowledge, right? If you are taking a, I'm just picking an example, right? But if you're taking a biology class and and the primary thing that you're being tested on is how many, you know, how many of the the names of different parts of a biological system you can remember, right? The, the idea of recall of domain knowledge is for any of us that can pick up a phone and look it up is becoming less important. And so I, what I think it's it's forcing the whole ecosystem and especially our educational ecosystem to do is to ask some really big foundational questions about the nature of learning and what knowledge or skills are most important for us to have the kind of impact that we want to have in the world. Because I have to believe, and this gets back to the occupational conversation, there is always going to be a role for people who care about how organic systems work. There is always going to be a role for people who want to understand chemistry, who want to understand physics, and the potential for human civilization that those things unlock. It may not be enough any longer to only focus on the purely technical skills that exist within each of those jobs. But what I think would still be important to focus on is what's at the heart of that domain, right? What makes a, a career in one of the heart sciences or a career building, you know, computer information systems? What is that work intended to do? And how can we as human beings help marshal our own resources, both our human innate human resources and our technological resources to accomplish those ends? It, it starts to get pretty philosophical pretty fast, which is part of why I like it. But, you know, I think it's I, I think it pushes us to have these kinds of to think about these things in ways that are very challenging, but that we must do as a society, because otherwise it'll be all too easy, I think, for technology in some domains to overtake it. Are educational institutions having those conversations right now? I think some of them are. I think in pockets, some of them are starting to do. But, you know, educational institutions are grappling with a whole lot of things right now. Most immediately, in many places, the conversation is still, is a tool like ChatGPT or, or any of the other large language models being used for cheating, right? How can we think about true academic integrity? But this is a massive change effort. It's something that we've been thinking about a lot, especially within the post-secondary context. How can the kinds of questions we're asking about AI prompt different ways for institutions to think about you know, what are the skills that we need to train for? How do we assess those skills in proper ways? And how do we create stronger career pathways and ecosystems around those career pathways so that the most important thing happens, which is that learners learn, develop themselves fully into their own potential as human beings, and then are connected to the right opportunities that they need to have to land in a quality job over time. Alex, in our country, 40% of the people get educated in community colleges. Everybody cannot afford a four-year college. 
Are you and others talking to those people also to make sure they are not left behind in this? Yes, that is. I'm so glad you asked. So Jobs for the Future is a deep believer in the power of the community college system, and we have strong relationships throughout that network. Um, and it it is, I think, all too easy for organizations that have fewer resources to risk being left behind in these conversations. I will say community colleges writ large are some of the greatest hotbeds of innovation in education that exists around this country. And we're starting to see them, I think, ask a number of these questions, even if they don't have the same resources that a four-year institution or that a major research university might bring to bear. They are looking for opportunities. They are learning as best they can. They're working within their leadership teams. And they're thinking in a really holistic way about what this means for students in their careers. Community colleges are, are not only pipelines into four-year institutions, but they're pipelines into careers, you know, both for people that are coming right out of high school, but also for older adults that are thinking about a career change, are reskilling themselves, then that need connections into their career ecosystem. I mean, to me, I feel like for anyone who is hoping, especially within a particular place, to understand what's the ecosystem of local employers thinking about, what questions are they asking? Go to a community college because they will be thinking about the answers and they'll be pretty smart about it. When we talk to regulators, I have, and we are trying to bring community college leaders also into this discussion. I have not seen too many of them, Alex, that have been brought in when we see, you know, hearings, briefings, et cetera. So that's something that we are trying to do because I feel that is very critical from not just from an economic standpoint, but also from a societal standpoint, because that I think is going to be very critical. Alex, how can education promote inclusivity and diversity in AI discussions? Making sure that the uh, legislative frameworks consider a wide range of perspectives. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's such a great question. And I think a couple of things. One is educational institutions are where the learners are. And learners, like all of us, are developing their own perspectives and expertise and experiences with using these kinds of AI tools. Again, especially generative AI, but not always limited to that. And it has felt to us, and this is an area that we're going to be digging into really deeply in the coming year, that too often the voice of the learner or the voice of the worker, for instance, has been absent from the broader conversation around AI. We need to have a better understanding of, of what the use of these tools is looking like in people's day-to-day -day lived experience, because I guarantee you that there will be a lot out there that none of us have expected um, or you know fully understand that people are experimenting with day in and day out. And so you know, educational institutions have an extraordinary pool of brilliance and innovation that, is, that I guarantee you is happening there that they can learn from and the rest of us can learn from, certainly that policymakers and regulators can learn from. So that's one thing. And the other thing is a, a really, I think, foundational and creative approach to what we call at JFF foundational AI literacy. It is our view that while the idea of broad digital literacy and digital skills are also themselves foundational and will never go away, AI now is becoming the new digital literacy. And so the more that all of us can develop a deeper understanding of what AI tools are equally important, what they are not, what the technology can do today, what it may be able to do in the future, that knowledge is going to be essential, not just for technology workers, which is often sort of where we see it. It's like, how do we take our technical talent and we upskill them in AI, which is great and really important. But we are talking about and to use the community college example, 
the business owner that's gone back to community college to take a digital marketing class, you know, how can they understand the ways in which AI is really revolutionizing digital marketing, for example? We're starting to see that today. So the more that we can think of and that educational institutions can think of making sure that everybody within their domains has access to foundational AI literacy training, the more that they will, and that includes, by the way, their faculty, their staff, the administration, everybody within the institution, that is going to set everybody up to have much better informed conversations and to act and use these tools in much more creative ways. And that overall, I think, starts to create the thousand flowers blooming of experiences and stories and questions and challenges that policymakers and regulators need to hear. That is the lifeblood of policy work. And so the, the more that we can foster some of that experience and some of those stories, I think the better. Looking to make the most out of AI advancements and innovation? Visit regulatingai.org to learn more about how best to optimize the use and integration of AI and sign up for the Regulating AI newsletter to keep up to date with the latest in AI governance and regulation. Alex, in the first part, you had mentioned the point of reskilling, which I think is a very critical aspect. What role do you think the government can play? Because, you know, when we talk about 60%, Walmart has said it's going to retrain 50,000 of its employees or reskill its employees. I won't say retrain. Talk about the role of reskilling, the role of government in this, because there are some bills in Congress that talk to it. But when we talk to members of Congress, we want to take your voice and tell them what does Alex think or what does JFF think about reskilling? Yeah, thank you. I mean, I, it, it's an incredibly important topic that, as you said, you know, many members of Congress and others across the administration are starting to think about. It was striking and, and I think really important to see that in the Biden administration executive order in the fall, that they are, are clearly starting to think about the ways in which, for example, existing Department of Labor programs that can help offset the cost of training programs or provide people subsidies could potentially be used for training or reskilling around AI. Recognizing that not everybody has either access to incredibly expensive, you know, the highest quality training opportunities, making sure, again, that this idea of, of universal AI literacy is really is meaningfully accessible to all of the populations that we serve, whether that means embedding it in the K-12 system, making sure that it's accessible in community colleges as well as four-year institutions, as well as the whole ecosystem of other training providers out there, like boot camps, like apprenticeships, right? I think we all have a role to play in, in making sure that everyone has access to these opportunities. And I think critically important too, and something we've been thinking about is making sure that those training opportunities meet learners and workers where they are, right? So not, in other words, not assuming a certain level of existing digital literacy or familiarity with AI or with technological tools. Uh, I think if you do that, it, it creates a double digital divide where people are left even farther behind because they may not have some of the, the sort of foundational skills that you need to be able to navigate the internet, to be able to navigate electronics, for example, or devices. So making sure that we're designing these kinds of interventions in a way that are, are truly accessible to all, which means making sure that we are having conversations with these populations uh, whether it's people from low-income communities, people from populations that are historically underrepresented in technology or in other fields to say, what do you need? What is going to make this kind of training or the experience of navigating AI really meaningful to you? 
And starting there, that's going to be really essential. So I think the more that either whether it's the federal government or, or state governments, you know, some of whom are starting to think in really deliberate ways around the use of AI in school-based settings, for example, the more that we can listen to the experiences of people that are actually engaging with these tools, understand what they need to be successful, that's going to be a really essential first step. You made some great points in there that the you talked that there is a role for states also. It's not just a federal thing. What can states do in terms of supporting some of these things, Alex? It's an important question. So at the from the, I think, especially the K through 12 educational level, the, the states are just starting to formulate and issue guidance, not all of them, but some of them, um, about the the way that, that K through 12 institutions in that state um, should be thinking about teaching in AI, whether using it as a teaching tool, as millions of teachers have already started to do, or to think of AI as a domain in and of itself. So this idea of AI literacy you know, a lot of what we're starting to see and hear anecdotally is, as we get out and, and just hear and talk to students or talk to institutions, is that the guidance can be very fragmented when it exists at all. Sometimes even just to speak at the university level, at the same university, students are navigating different requirements for different classes about the ways in which they can or cannot use AI tools. And to a degree, I think that's understandable because this is still such a nation space and everything is moving so fast and we're all figuring it out simultaneously. But that's really tricky for students to have to navigate. It's tricky for faculty to have to navigate. Same is true, you know, for a one school that's in one block and another school that's in another block. So the more that we can do the hard and messy work of working together to think about what are some initial frameworks or, or sets of guidance that we can put out there in the world, even recognizing that it's version 1.000, that it's a draft, that it needs ongoing refinement. Just to start to put some of those markers down, I think it's going to be really important. And that in turn requires a degree of understanding and flexibility from all of us that are consumers of that information that these things may change as we learn more. And, you know, we sort of have to navigate that as we go. And I think that's a tricky space for policy to be in, for sure. Alex, when we call it a digital divide in many ways, there are many differences in the absorption of technology within whether it's here in the inner city, whether it's by gender, by rural areas, etc. We've seen that. This is our chance to maybe look at all our lessons before and maybe try to at least get it right. What are you and GFF doing to make sure that we learn from what we have done and try to make sure everybody gets a seat on this table? Yeah, it's so critical. I, you know, I think when we are only one organization, as is everybody else who's in this space, but that often the role that JFF plays in the education and workforce ecosystem is as essentially a convener, right? To, to be at the center of a lot of conversations. I've had leaders come to me and say, I come to JFF to have conversations I can't have anywhere else because we're bringing a whole lot of disparate spaces together that are more proximate than they may think they are, but that often don't have the chance to talk to each other. And so for us, um, especially I think in AI, to have the opportunity to, to do some of this research, um, to have some of these conversations about what's happening on the ground, to dig more deeply through the lens, not just of, of how AI is reshaping the future of work, but especially how it is reshaping the future of work for workers that too, and learners that too long have had, you know, not had barriers to advancement, for instance, that may not have had access to all of the opportunities that may exist across the economy. And the institutions that are working day in and day out to serve those people and to create opportunities for them to access these kinds of jobs. 
what do those opportunities look like for these populations for whom equitable economic advancement and quality jobs is the key to making sure that they can live the kinds of lives of promise and opportunity and potential that a quality job and educational advancement and economic equity can help provide. And so for us, I think being able to socialize these ideas to raise questions about what does this mean for workers? How can we take the position that we're making choices today about the way that we're adopting AI. This is not just one big tidal wave that's going to sweep all of us in its wake. We are every day, every time we pick up one of these tools, every time we have a conversation about it, we're making a choice about how we are playing a role in reshaping the future of work. And so when we can do that in a way that centers the the, the populations that we think about at JFF and the, this goal of using AI to accelerate equitable economic advancement rather than hold it back, that I think is a really important role for us to play. And because we are situated at the cross-section of so many of these different spaces, I think we, our goal, at least our aspiration, and I hope we're able to do this is to connect some dots that may not otherwise be connected and inspire new ways of thinking about these questions that are, are so big and so unwieldy, but that are so urgent right now. Alex, a couple of our guests have come in, some members of Congress, et cetera, have said that they're most excited about this as being able to give personalized education to every student as a co-pilot, you know, somebody uh, who's maybe not as strong in one subject or somebody who has had inherent weakness for the past so many years, whether it's in language or stuff like that. What are your thoughts on that perspective? As I said, we've had several members of Congress say they are, this is what excites them the most. Yeah, I think that's one of the use cases that we see emerge the most quickly as having a ton of promise and that's being tested and piloted now. So some of those tools, whether it's Conmigo from Khan Academy and others now, you know, have been out there for long enough that I hope we're going to start to see some really interesting initial learnings. The idea of, of leveraging AI for personalization it is also one of the things that I'm especially excited about, thinking about not just for education and learning, but the ongoing lifelong effort of career navigation. We all are not just in you know more than one job, but we all over time are going to have many more than one career over the course of our lives. And I personally have had the experience of navigating, trying to make the right decision to think about what's meaningful for me, but also where I can make the greatest impact, what will help me provide for myself and, and my family, for instance. And those are the kinds of conversations that they're hard and they should be hard, but they don't have to be as hard as they are. And we, the opportunity to build on the, the data that AI can unlock and the way in which the, especially a generative AI, a large language model chat interface can make it so accessible for people to access that information, that's really critical. That's not to say that the solutions that are out there now or that are being built are a silver bullet um, or that it's not going to take real work to get them right. You know, some of I've talked to, to some leaders that are starting to build and pilot these solutions in higher ed, and they're thinking about things like we need more data. We need more data about students' personal experiences so that the, the tool can truly personalize in the way that we aspire that it will. That forces us to ask big questions about student privacy, about what information should be shared, about how that data is being protected, how models are being trained on that data, not just for that group of students, but in the future whose data is showing up in those solutions, right? That when we think about large language models that are trained on the whole of the internet, 
that's great. And the whole of the internet is not representative of all of us. And so we start again to get into pretty deep philosophical questions about making sure that the promise of a truly personalized solution is actually technologically possible um, and that the way in which a chat tool is helping you navigate the world is aligned with our best visions for what the world can be rather than, you know, what is way too often a deeply biased and deeply problematic representation of the world on which these models were trained. So there are a lot of questions that I think we have to answer about so the fundamentals of how it works, not to mention the pedagogical design of these tools. But I agree that the more that we can help create platforms and tools that are asking questions of us, that are that know us well, that are encouraging us to unlock our own potential, that's incredibly exciting and it's really scalable. And quality education has been much too hard to scale. So if I were a policymaker, I would be pretty excited about that too. So Alex, our podcast is listened to by a lot of people on the Hill, members of Congress, their staff, et cetera. We do briefings and things of that nature. This is your moment to tell some of them, what would you like to see, so to speak, in upcoming legislation or your thoughts, uh, especially on education, which is dear to a lot of people, whether you're a parent or you're an educator, you're a student yourself. So please, this is your moment to tell them. I, I mean, there are so many great ideas that are, are starting to be developed on the Hill. The legislation that's come out so far has been terrific to see. In addition to in, encouraging everyone who's thinking about this from a policymaker perspective to continue to double down on listening to your constituents, listening to their own experiences, which they're doing anyway, I can guarantee you. I would encourage them to keep thinking about the ways in which we can make this opportunity meaningfully accessible for everybody and to really unpack the barriers and challenges that exist to being able to do that. The ways in which data flows around the labor market, labor market intelligence data, you know, how can we think in really creative ways to make sure that we're actually capturing the opportunities that are, are emerging through AI that can sometimes be very difficult to do with labor market data as it exists currently, especially at the federal level. So starting to ask those kinds of questions, really doubling down on this idea of meaningful resources to make sure that literacy training in AI is accessible to everybody and to think seriously about beyond just the training itself, what does it take for workers and learners to be able to engage in that training really successfully? Do they have childcare obligations? Do they have transportation needs if they need to get someplace in person for this training? You know, are they potentially foregoing an earning opportunity to engage in training and can we create an earn and learn opportunity to do that? In many ways, so much of this is, it's just good practice. It's just good workforce and education policy. And it's about how we apply it in the domain of AI in particular. But the more that our federal and state and local policy communities can center the idea that this should be a tool for human advancement, this should be a tool in service of humanity and not one in which we are serviced to, the more that we can center that idea, I think we'll start to get at the right questions from a policy perspective. That's very, very helpful, very, very insightful. Alex, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Your message will be hopefully parlayed across, and we hope that you come back again. That's been really great having you. Thanks so much, Alex. Thank you so much. This has been a terrific conversation. I'm, I'm really pleased to get the chance to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to the Regulating AI Innovate Responsibly podcast. You'll find links in the show notes to any resources mentioned on the show. 
If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe so you'll never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review.